this is a, a very special day for me personally. I know it's a special day for Sarah, but um, many years ago I was in a band called Summersoft and we used to go touring around the place and, and at one time we were in the South Island. This must have been 2001, so many, many years ago. <laughs> Even I was young. Yeah, thanks, Nice. Uh, and, um, and after the service, uh, a prophetess came up to, to us as a band and she started prophesying. And to me, she said, you have a very close relationship with your father, don't you? And I said, uh, yeah, I do. And she said, you will be a good father too, one day. And when I turned 44, I was thinking, maybe, like I remember that prophecy. And I thought, maybe God was referring to in a figurative sense, you know, like other people's children. I'd be as like a father to to them. Um, But now... Precious Anya, that's it. She's not only a gift, but she's a fulfillment of a prophecy. And um, yeah, that's a very special, special day. And I just really want to honour the Lord for um, that word and, and the encouragement that it gave me to, to stay strong. It was, it was the single journey is not easy. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was encouragements like that. Uh, and also Rowena and Rose and many of you here that um, enabled me to live uh, a life that honoured God in that time. So, yeah, wonderful, wonderful day. Um, Next week we're going to start on a new series looking at the person of Jesus. So uh, it's a great opportunity to invite anyone that's looking, uh, doesn't know about Jesus, or wants, wants to find out about what's the big deal about Jesus. We're going to start that next week. So just encourage you to... Um, yeah, uh, if you know anyone that's interested, welcome them along. They'll be more than welcome. Uh, Sarah's going to look at uh, Israel's expectation of a Messiah and why many of them missed Jesus when he came. And uh, we're going to run up to Easter Sunday. The last one will be on Easter Sunday, so it'll be a, a wonderful series. We're excited about that. And if you missed uh, Vision Sunday last week, um, we spoke about where we feel the Lord is leading us and some of our core values and it's on our website so you can, you can check that out. Um, right now I'd like to invite Kieran up. There she is. And she's going to bring us our reading which is also on the, on the screen. Um, the reading today is from John 12, verses 1 to 8. Six days before Passover, Jesus went back to Bethany, where he had raised Lazarus from death. A meal had been prepared for Jesus. Martha was doing the serving, and Lazarus himself was there. Mary took a very expressive bottle of, sorry, expensive bottle of perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet. She wiped them with her hair, and the sweet smell of the perfume filled the house. A disciple named Judas Iscariot was there. He was the one who was going to betray Jesus, and he asked, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor? Judas did not really care about the poor. He asked this because he carried the money bag and sometimes would steal from it. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. She has kept this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. 
Some of you will have spotted my deliberate mistake there about the. Uh... <laughs> okay, I'm going to invite Sam up now, and um, he's going to bring us some word that I'm really looking to. Thanks. Thanks, Graham. Thank you. Um, hey, that's awesome, that story of the, the prophecy. Um, yeah. Well, I had a um, similar moment, actually. Um, Jules uh, actually went to, to our church, and um, I knew her and her husband, and um, they ended up uh, parting ways. He was uh, not, a, not a great chap, ended up having an affair, and they separated. And uh, when I was um, chatting to her, about must have been three months later, was chatting to her about that and hearing this disastrous story. Um, she was uh, sort of retelling it to me, and I felt the Lord say to me quite, quite clearly, "One day you're going to show her what marriage was supposed to look like." And I sort of didn't really know what to do with that. <laughs> only ever spoken to her about three times in my life, but knew she'd been in this uh, relationship. And so, yeah, what do you know? Years later, um, it came to pass. Um, they're good prophecies, Graham, but they're scary prophecies too. Uh, remember the prophecy was that you'd be a good dad. Uh, so, you know, remember that. And I sometimes remember my dad. That's right, I was supposed to, <laughs> supposed to show what it was supposed to look like. I'm actually supposed to be doing a better job um, of this. They can be, yeah, there. They're, they're good, but they can sometimes uh, put a chill up your spine as well, so remember that. We heard this quote um, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, earlier. Uh, so here, here he is, um, you know, well known for some of these quotes. But who is there in our times who can devote them, himself with an easy mind to music, friendship, games or happiness? Surely not just the ethical man, but only the Christian. He went on in another letter to say, we ought to find and love God and what he actually gives us. What's in, what's in front of us. And if it pleases him to allow us to enjoy some overwhelming earthly happiness, we mustn't try to be more pious than God. He's actually writing to people who, maybe within the backdrop of World War II, were actually having some moments to stop and to celebrate, and maybe he felt weren't embracing those. He's saying, well, don't, don't be more pious than God. If he's delivered you in that time that, with so much other stuff going on, delivers you actually reason to celebrate and to be happy then don't sort of second-guess God. You're not more pious than he is. And if he's delivered you for this season of time, cause to celebrate, then it's right to celebrate and to enjoy some things. Everything has its time, and the main thing is that we keep step with God. Don't keep stepping on, pressing on a few steps ahead or keep dawdling a step behind, but actually listening for what it is that the, the season is uh, in our lives. Actually, the story that we've just heard of Mary anointing Jesus... Um, actually carries something of this tension between celebration and solemnity uh, in that passage of, uh, of John. And this morning I actually want to speak about being quite personally challenged by this passage just recently, uh, over the last sort of three or four weeks. This is a story that's a familiar one to many of us. If you've spent uh, long in church, you'll, you'll, have, you'll have heard this story any number of times. And sometimes our familiarity with it can cause us to miss some of what's going on. We've just been doing at my church uh, in Auckland, St. Paul's, 
Uh, We've been doing a whole series on John's Gospel, slowly, some might say painstakingly, working our way through it. I think we started in about um, May of last year. We're only up to about John 12, because I uh, did some of what I'm going to share with you today, last week, um, at our our church, out of this this passage. So this week, I think we're moving on to John 13. We're going to get there eventually. I think Johnny wants to make sure we do actually get to Passion Week around sort of Easter, and then we've sort of covered off the Gospel of John. But you get in John's Gospel, he actually tells us what his intention is in his Gospel. He tells us why he's writing his Gospel. And we've encapsulated it in what's become kind of like the tagline for this series, that you might believe. I'm writing these things down, that you might believe in this Jesus character, uh, that you might understand and know uh, that he's the Son of God, and put your faith in him. And so in uh, John's Gospel, we get sometimes called the Book of Signs, that point to uh, and reveal increasingly who Jesus is. It starts with turning uh, water into wine, and it, it finishes with the seventh sign, uh, the raising of Lazarus uh, from the dead. And so this is the backdrop. That resurrection has just happened in the chapter before this one. And so what we find in John 12 is that a dinner party is happening. Uh, The crowds are gathering actually, not just at the dinner party, but are sort of coming uh, to just really catch catch sight of this Lazarus character. Um, To see this walking miracle, the news is spreading. And to see the rock star who raised him from the dead. You know, it's kind of like, who, who can pull off a party trick like that? Not, not many. So I want to sort of see this rock star. But as we know, not everyone appreciates rock music. And so uh, you get as well um, some growing discontent among the religious and political leaders of the time. And actually the end of John 11 uh, captures some of the conversations that the chief priests are, are having. Uh, And then after this passage as well, um, they talk about it. So you've got Lazarus, this resurrected corpse, uh, who is now walking and talking. And enough people saw it happen, uh, and it can't be denied. And they're telling other people, and the excitement is building. He's becoming too much of a drawcard and a distraction, and so they've decided that he's got to go. And uh, the one responsible is Jesus, this kind of strange wannabe messiah and he's got growing notoriety and popularity as well and it's perceived as a real threat not just to the religious status quo but to the very delicate political situation at the time and so he has to go and so they're plotting the death of both Jesus and Lazarus and of course we now know in hindsight that Jesus is going to go the passion week isn't far away But we're so close to it, and yet no one really seems to be picking up on Jesus' hints about it. And so uh, we have this incident that's nestled so close to this exciting seventh sign of death to life for Lazarus. And we've got this incident which contains kind of a foreshadowing of life to death for Jesus. And they sit right alongside each other. So the crowds are gathering. Jesus is with his disciples having a meal uh, at Lazarus' house. He's no doubt the centre of attention. But his sisters are there 
as well. Once again, Martha is serving, we hear, in that passage that was read out. And it recalls for us her complaint, actually in Luke's Gospel, when she was doing the work by herself on that occasion, and actually grizzled to the Lord about it. Uh, And she said, you know, here I am working, aren't you going to tell Mary to give me a hand? She's just sitting at your feet listening. And on that occasion, he responded, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. So once again, Martha's serving, although this time we don't pick up any hints that she's doing it begrudgingly. Jesus and the others, including Lazarus, who's mentioned by name, are reclining at the table. And you can just imagine the kind of conversation, you know. Yeah, Jesus, you did it. I mean, that's, that's fine. But Lazarus, dude, like, what's it, what's it? Like, you don't get to have a chat with someone who was a cadaver for four days very often. And so I imagine that that is dominating their conversation. But once again, Mary kind of steals the show. This time, not just by going to the feet of Jesus to sit and listen, but by taking out this outrageously expensive perfume and anointing Jesus' feet with it and wiping his feet with her hair. Now, some of you will have heard before that letting down your hair in public was not a done thing uh, at the time. It was considered improper. And so Judas won't have been the only one actually feeling pretty uncomfortable. Although, as we know, this passage tells us he's uncomfortable for another reason. Or maybe another reason besides. uh, On top of uh, the rather kind of inappropriate display of the hair being let down, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Different versions describe it different ways. 300 silver coins, uh, 300 denarii. It was worth a year's wages, he says. It goes on to explain the insincerity of his comments. It says he doesn't care about the poor. Uh, He was looking after the common purse of the disciples and would often dip his hand into the till. And so he was a thief. He didn't care about others. But he's kind of making this point um, about the extravagance of it. What he's not doing is exaggerating about the cost. So a denarius was... Uh, the common payment for an unskilled labourer's day's work uh, at the time. And so I calculated 300 days at our minimum wage here in New Zealand. It's just under $40,000. So this is an extravagant and outrageously expensive perfume, and there is outrage, uh, from Judas at least. The perfume is actually, uh, in some translations, uh, named. Uh, It's called nard. Uh, It's called from uh, the spikenard uh, plant. You get it by crushing uh, not the leaves or the flowers, but actually the root uh, of a plant from the honeysuckle uh, family. And actually, in the build-up to our service last week, I managed to secure, uh, at great cost, I might add, uh, some spikenard. Some original, they still make, the original spike nard, and my daughter Eden, I think, is still around, and she's got some cards of it, and she and I have put some of the perfume uh, on the cards of the spike nard, and we're just going to pass some of those around, and you can have a smell of the fragrance that would have filled the house when Mary uh, broke that open. Now, I don't have a pint of it, 
um, because I just didn't have a year's wages uh, to spend. The way of extracting it must have improved because it actually doesn't cost that much at all. But uh, here to buy this, spare no expense for you to have a multi-sensory uh, experience. It's a strange smell. It's, it's kind of um, not off-putting, but I'm not sure I'd want to shower in it every day. It's kind of almost got a, uh, a friend described it as almost medicinal uh, smell, which kind of isn't surprising. It was used for anointing uh, bodies before burial, after death and before burial. So this is the fragrance that would have filled the house. What I discovered in tracking that down uh, is that not only does spikenard exist as an essential oil, um, but it people actually make perfumed anointing oils out of spikenard as well for, for, for anointing people and praying for them. And not just spikenard, but there's any number of uh, kind of perfumed, fragranced anointing oils that you can uh, buy. There seems to be a booming industry in supplying churches actually with perfumed anointing oils. So everything uh, up here, what have we got? Um, frankincense and myrrh uh, up the top there. The balm of Gilead down there. You can get these anointing oils that are actually fragranced um, with, with that. Um, which actually, when I think about it, is a good thing. Most of the times when we think, actually we should pray and anoint this person, we're reaching for the canola usually, we're a bit unprepared. And so anything that's an upgrade from that, and if the, the fragrance has a biblical reference, then uh, there's, there's certainly no harm in that. Um, although I guess if you did use spikenard anointing oil too liberally or literally, uh, there's a possibility that there'll be healing or you'll be crucified in a fortnight. So, you know, be careful out there. Uh, as you as you use spikenard fragranced anointing oils, there are a couple of points that I want to draw out from this uh, reading. The first one is that once again, Mary has focused on what is right, and this time it's really cost her. Tom Wright describes Jesus' response as actually quite difficult to translate. So N.T. Wright, many of you will have heard the name, uh, New Testament scholar. He says, It appears that Mary's been keeping this expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' body after his death. And his interpretation of Jesus' reply is that it somehow both affirms the use of it now and the keeping of some for use later. And it seems to be... he, he uh, includes this phrase that her act of love is a prophetic statement. She probably doesn't realise how accurately she is prophesying the events. And he writes in his commentary, certainly probably doesn't realise the time frame, how close it is actually to Jesus' death. So we get this kind of foreshadowing of something that is only weeks away. In any case, Jesus commends her actions. This time, not in response to her serving sister, uh, but in response to the suggestion of Judas. And his response is actually uh, also a little bit cryptic and a little bit jarring to our ears. You will always have the poor among you. You could 
interpret that as a little bit dismissive. You know? Don't worry about the, the, year's, wa- the year's wages, Judas, you know, the $40,000. Uh, you're always going to have the poor. Some commentators have, have criticised Jesus' response and certainly some of it jars with what we understand the rest of his ministry to be incredible care and compassion for the poor. And some commentators have said, you know, this is, this is pretty rough of Jesus to do this. Some have suggested that maybe, maybe John's recorded it wrong. But I think there's a few things that we could note uh, about his response where he, where he says you're always going to have the poor. Uh, the first thing I think he's, if he's not highlighting this directly, then there are certainly plenty of other places in the gospel account where he says this explicitly. Jesus needs to come before everything, and that includes some of the very good things that we do in his name. <laughs> Jesus trumps even the activities that we sometimes do in Jesus' name. And that, to me, as someone who does some work in church-related fields, uh, that gets pretty scary at times. That I can't use those things in competition to Jesus. The second thing is that he's absolutely right. The poor still exist. Uh, They exist in our towns, in our cities. They exist in this country. Some of us, I, have gone through seasons of feeling like I was among them. I can remember the humiliation when I was a student of having payment not go through and leaving a mountain of groceries at the countdown checkout because they all went through and I swiped my card and it just declined. And walking out to the car park feeling the humiliation of not having enough. Now, you know, I don't want to equate that with somebody who's had long periods of going without. But that for me was a time of just going, wow. And actually, given that I had been practicing medicine before then and had gone back to being a theology student, it was in that season, I had some pretty harsh words with God in the car park. I can tell you that. But Jesus is absolutely right that the poor still exist because unjust systems and sinful individual hearts still exist. Not among the poor, but among the systems that keep things that way. No one knows that more than Jesus. And thirdly, and this is the third thing to know, no one knows that more than Jesus because it's made, this comment, that the poor you will always have, that comment is being made by the one person who can put right those unjust systems and those individual sinful hearts. And he's about to start that work uh, through the cross. Although, of course, uh, that work won't be completed until he returns. But we live in this uh, time of him, as as we kind of cooperate with what Jesus is doing, trying to put right some of those unjust systems. Another thing that commentators have noted about this reply is that Jesus seems to be affirming that different things are right in different times and in different contexts. Um, And while he specifically references things back to himself, his comment about the constant presence of the poor seems to suggest that while always having a heart for the poor, we will need discernment to know when other things require our attention, our time or our money. 
And so some commentators have, have noted that Judas's accusation is a little bit like saying to someone, hey, I actually noticed how nice that coffin was that you buried your father in. They make plywood coffins, don't you know? You could have buried him in one of those and sold the difference and given that away. Now, of course, we'd never say that if we went to a funeral, would we? Because we actually know there's a, there's a time and a rightness and a discernment about reverencing and honouring and doing things that are right in the right timing. So that's the first point I want to make. Once again, Mary has focused on what is right, and this time it's really cost her. The second point I want to make, and this really highlights some of the implications for us, is that we have just entered our own season of preparation towards Jesus' death. Uh, so two Wednesdays ago, not the one just gone, but the one before that was Ash Wednesday. And so we enter this time uh, of Lent. It's a little hard to see the red marker just to the side of it there. Um, in this build-up, I think I might have highlighted it on the, uh, on the wheel going around in the church calendar, starts at Ash Wednesday and counts off 40 calendar days minus the Sunday. So around about 46 days uh, leading us up to the Easter weekend. I guess I could frame this point of us having entered a bit of a preparation uh, towards Easter as a question. Am I focusing on what is right? And is it costing me? Jules and I joined an Anglican church only a couple of years ago, so I'm still very much learning about Lent. I've read a number of descriptions, but actually it's hard to go past the opening paragraph actually on the Wikipedia page. So I'll read that out to you. Lent is a solemn religious observance in the Christian liturgical calendar that begins on Ash Wednesday and ends approximately six weeks later before Easter Sunday. The purpose of Lent is the preparation of the believer for Easter through prayer, repentance of sins, generosity in money and in service to others, and self-denial often in some form of fasting, giving up certain foods like alcohol, sugar, for some of you that's two major food groups right there, uh, meat, as the movie portrayed so well, chocolate. Um, and this event is observed in the Anglican, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Methodist and Catholic churches. And I've noticed a growing number of other churches actually wanting to almost opt into this tradition, not because it's the only time or the only way that you can... Uh, in, involve yourself and, uh, in prayer, fasting, other, other disciplines uh, but just because this one's got some real weight of tradition to it uh, this has been done for a long time there's, there's a lot of writing around it a lot of reflection on it um, it's, it's quite a, a helpful time helpful for helping us to re- reposture ourselves uh, towards the things of, of God to reposition ourselves now this isn't going to be a, uh, a massive call for you to um, add in lots of things or take out lots of things from your life for the next, what, 40 minus Wednesday last gone, you know, 28 odd days or whatever it is, 30 days. Um, 
You might be visiting here for the first time. Uh, You might not make it to church that often. You could be going through a really tough time for other reasons. I'll name a couple of ones in my life in a few moments. Um, It might have already been just very costly for you to make it here or just to come back week after week and even to sing some of the things that we sing in songs uh, to God. And if that's you, it's great you're here. Uh, That's awesome. You get to sit back and relax for the next few minutes uh, because I'm going to share a little bit about how this passage and this build-up to Lent has really challenged me this last couple of weeks. So you can feel free to opt into the personal challenge that I got uh, as much or as little as you want to and you'll, you'll know what's right um, I was recovering uh, in bed from a cold um, some weeks ago um, and a friend uh, was coming over to chat and pray with Jules and I about a season in their life that had been uh, really quite, quite tough um, and we knew something of it and we knew the severity of it for them and so, and this is something I hardly ever do. Before they came over, I actually found a, a quiet place in our house, which with a six, five, and three-year-old is pretty hard to find. But I'd sort of gone off into a side room in our house and had just um, taken a couple of moments just to pray before they came around. I, I can't remember the last time I did that. This is not a, a sort of a humble brag about the, you know, my, my piety. Uh, quite, quite the opposite, as you'll see from what God said to me in those few moments. Um, but on this occasion I, I, I did and I was like Lord how, how do we approach this and I got the sense it wasn't an audible voice or anything but I, I, I felt this strong impression that I was to pray and fast on behalf of this person and again I hardly ever do that I can't remember the last time I, I fasted for someone else uh, you know this is again um, God was like it's actually time to exercise that muscle, and you're to um, you're to, to to pray and fast for this person. They're going to come over. We're going to chat together. You know, you, I got the sense they were going to come. We were going to chat. We we're going to pray for them. But actually, nothing in the moment was going to happen. This was something where I was just to regularly just pray for them and to fast. And I've done that once a week um, since. Uh, so it's been four weeks uh, since that time. But I felt that this was going to be the first of a few nudges from God, actually, to up the ante on my prayer life a little bit. I realised that this was a bit of a call, and that coming into the season of Lent, he was just going to use this. And again, I'm, I'm not particularly familiar with it. I'm, I'm slowly getting used to these rhythms of the calendar year. But actually to use this time just to draw aside and to sharpen up on a few things, uh, to listen to take a bit of extra time to maybe get up a little earlier uh, in the morning. It was a call to practice some discipline. And there's a deep irony to that challenge as I sat there for those couple of minutes because eight years ago, and I flashed the picture up just a moment ago, uh, a couple of colleagues and I wrote a book on discipline, which made it ironic that I was feeling it's been an awful long time since I did any of the things that I wrote a book on eight years ago. It's called the Hare and the Tortoise, as the um, tagline says there to it, learning to pace ourselves in a world gone mad. What we did is we actually wrote out an introduction each month to a different spiritual discipline. Sarah, you're saying you spoke a bit about this um, a few weeks ago and mentioned the book. 
Things like simplicity, solitude, rest, fasting, submission, meditation, prayer, reading scripture. Uh, even eight years ago, when we had finished the uh, final draft, and we asked some friends to proofread it, um, my wife Jules uh, was reading it. We'd only been married about a year and a half. And she read the, the, the final draft, and she came back, and she was like, babe, this is incredible, but you're not doing any of it. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> so I pull the pull the dagger out. Et tu brute? It's like you too, um, and even less once kids come along. I was like, wow! I thought it was hard to find the time to practice some of those things. But what I realised is, as I sat in that room just before our friend came over, uh, and it was this all this was happening in, in about four or five minutes. Just this kind of like. She's coming on over. Your approach is to pray and fast. It's actually going to be time to pull up the socks a little bit on some of these things and to re-engage in some discipline. Oh, and how's about you pull off that book you wrote and reread that? Be a great idea on some of these things. Because for a while, um, I've had this growing discomfort that I've been explaining away some of my disengagement with. Just certain practices, certain things, certain aspects of my faith, using some explanations that really don't apply anymore. I actually had uh, open heart surgery back in 2016. Uh, I had what they realised in retrospect must have been a, a small congenital defect that got worse and worse and really um, uh, gave out spectacularly in 2016. And I had to have a repair on a heart valve. And so I've kind of used that heart surgery as a bit of an excuse to sort of go easy on myself in lots of ways. But if I'm brutally honest, my cardiologist has been deliriously happy since about six months after the operation. So we're talking early 2017 at the absolute latest. And any, other, any medical condition that remains... Uh, the profession calls being 45. That's what I'm left with. And so I can't use that surgery as an excuse anymore for kind of just taking it a bit easy on myself. Likewise, the almost six years of broken sleep that we had with, one, with young kids means that up until this last couple of weeks, unless I had an early start for work, I just wouldn't set an alarm. I would take every minute the kids would give me and just stay, stay asleep. Uh, some of you are nodding as though you've been in that boat. But again, if I'm brutally honest, uh, everyone in our household has been sleeping through the night for at least 18 months. But I've been continuing to kind of say, oh, you know, just need to kind of, you know. Um, now, just because I've been interpreting those seasons generously... I don't want to understate the challenge of seasons like that. Seasons like having young kids in the house. Seasons like grief. Seasons like a deep disappointment with God. I don't want to downplay them. I can remember three years ago when our youngest, the little fiery redhead that you'll see bouncing around here, uh, was only a few months old. And Lent came around, and it was a bit of a novelty for us then. One of the first times we'd heard about it, and you know, we'd, we'd sort of done it the year before, but this was only the second year we'd ever sort of known that it was a season of kind of just identifying 
with this build-up to the to the kind of solemnity of Easter. And I said to Jules, you know, it's going to be Lent next week. What are we going to do for Lent? And Jules just looked at me with that kind of blank stare that only the sleep-deprived parent knows so well and says, do for Lent. Our whole life is Lent. (laughs) Every minute of every day we're in this kind of zone and have been because there's only about a 19-month gap between um, our, uh, both times between our kids. So I get that. And I get that it's not just kids. There are other seasons uh, that can do that. So again, if that's you, this invitation isn't for you. Uh, but for the rest of us, Lent as a season and what it represents um, is an invitation to see the world differently, to reposture ourselves with Easter in mind and perhaps reprioritize some things. Some of that reposturing and reprioritizing uh, is will likely go well beyond the season as well. Not always. There are certain things, craft beer among them, uh, that I've given up for Lent. Um, I'll be picking that one back up again in six weeks. Um, but other things, like just some changes to how I'm approaching uh, my, my faith, Actually, I feel like it's a, it's a much longer seasonal shift. I've got to say, though, it's, it's not all doom and gloom. Once we wean ourselves off our frantic or fragmented pace of life or the need for continuous comfort or distraction, we can slowly discover or, or rediscover the deep sense of joy and satisfaction that comes from Practices like stillness, uh, prayer, even fasting. Um, I've been trying to set the alarm uh, a little earlier and have been just marvelling at how still it is in the mornings. If I can beat the kids up, it's just like, oh, the house is so still and quiet. I'm going to sit with a cup of tea and read or just stare out the window. Uh, I've seen a couple of sunsets, uh, sorry, sunrises recently. Um, and just being kind of re-amazed by them. Um, but I won't say it's, it's easy. Uh, it's not doom and gloom, but it's not easy. I'd forgotten how hungry you get when you don't eat for a day. I've only been getting up half an hour earlier than usual for about a week and a half, and already I'm over. I, I sort of want to tap the canvas and uh, I want out. But that's kind of my point that I want to leave us with this afternoon. Mary focused on what was right and it cost her. In this build up to Easter that results in such extraordinary good news. Are we focusing on some things that are right? And is there a cost to us. One of the questions that the Lord challenged me with over those next few days after that evening of prayer with that friend was, when was the last time that you voluntarily did something for me and it cost you? I know you've coped with things as they've come at you and you've done that as faithfully as you can and there's a time when you're in the midst of one of those seasons, that's what you do and that's what faithfulness looks like. But God said to me, you're you're not in one of those seasons right now. When did you last voluntarily 
do something for me that cost you? When did you last voluntarily um, give up some time or position yourself, posture, posture yourself uh, in a costly way, the way Mary did? So I actually just want to uh, give us a moment just to pause and reflect actually, uh, just to spend just a moment, I'll pass back to, to Graham in, a, in a, just a moment, but just for us to sit uh, in quietness, to think uh, of some things. Um, we're at the start, kind of the start, I found myself last week saying Happy New Year to some people at church. It's taken a while for us to get into the rhythm of our year. Um, you may sort of feel the same way. But just this year, you may be looking at something just a little bit different to engage with Mary. Um, uh, Sarah mentioned that um, a couple of weeks ago here in Tortoise, actually bought a few copies with me. Slip up to me afterwards and, and see me after the service if that's something you'd like to do. If you think, oh, just an introduction each year to something just to look at slightly differently, um, an introduction to some scriptural passages around some of these things. Um, I just Because I was mentioning it, I brought a few with me. Um, feel free to come and see me. But some of those words even up there um, might be just uh, resonating with you. You might be just getting a sense that God's asking uh, you, inviting you uh, into something over this next uh, few weeks and perhaps beyond, just to focus on. Let's just um, reflect for a couple of moments. And then Graham will get you just to come up and, uh, and close us off.